Okay, so we're continuing our series called Burning Questions. We do this every two years in the spring where we invite you to submit whatever question you have about God, the Bible, the Christian life, something that you find perplexing, confusing, uh, something that if you just had an answer for it, like it would, it would help you in some way in your faith. And uh, we've got some great questions you've submitted, so thank you for those of you who had submitted uh, questions. Uh, keep them coming. They're great. There, there's no wrong question. There's no bad question, okay? There's bad answers, and I'm, I'm going to try to not give any bad answers to these questions, and we're not going to be able to address all of them because some of them are hard, and I'm just, I'm going for the softballs, okay? The lobs here. No, no, that's not true, because if you know, last week when we began this series, we addressed the question, does a Christian still go to heaven if they commit suicide? Right, we addressed something pretty heavy last week and how to think as Christians about doctor-assisted suicide. And so if you missed that, you might want to go back and, and take a look. And so some of these are really, um, are really serious, great questions. So one of the questions I saw that kind of caught my eye this last week simply said, why does God need and want glory for Himself? Have you ever asked that question? Why is God so interested in His own glory? Now, often I look for the question behind the question, because this why is this person asking this? And I don't know who asked it, maybe you're in the room, but kind of reading between the lines, I think the question behind the question is this, is God selfish for desiring His own glory? Is God selfish? Because what would you think of Rusty if Rusty did everything for His own glory, for the praise of His name? And He instructed His wife and children to do everything they did for the praise of Rusty's name. What would you say I was? Egocentric, narcissistic, right? Selfish, not godly, but hey, hold on now, not godly, but is God selfish for desiring His glory when I'm not supposed to desire my glory? So that's a really important question. That's actually a really good question. It's, it's an important question because it actually really gets to the heart of who God is, and it gets to the heart of the nature of our relationship with God and, and, and what it means to be a Christian and what the essence of Christ, the, the Christian life is. So it, it, it's a great question that we're going to address this morning. Is God selfish for desiring His own glory? Well, I guess maybe the first question is, is that even true? Does God desire His own glory? Maybe that premise is wrong. Let me just guide you through a few verses here. Isaiah chapter 48 Verses 9 and through 11 says this. Now, these are the words of God. For my, listen to how many times you hear the word my. For my own name's sake, I delay my wrath. For the sake of my praise, I hold it back from you. So as not to destroy you completely. See, I've refined you, though not as silver, I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake. I say it twice, just unless you think it was for your sake, someone else's sake. For my sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another, says the Lord. See how many times he says, my, my name, my name, my praise, my glory, that's what I'm after. Well, maybe that's like a one-off. But then you go back a few chapters, Isaiah 43, verse 6 and 7, he says, 
God says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. He's talking about you. Why did God make you? He made you for His glory, that He might receive glory. Okay? And then in the New Testament, you have Paul say this, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. What he's saying there is it doesn't matter what you do. Well, I mean, it matters that you don't disobey God, but, but what matters is your motive and your motive in everything you do is supposed to be the same. Like some people in the church then, some like, like they felt like there were certain things they ought to eat and not ought to eat and certain days they were to celebrate in different ways and there was some... And he says, it doesn't matter. What matters is that whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. That's what's truly important. So what he's saying is the goal and the purpose of everything you do is to be God's glory. So we start to see a pattern here and in fact... Well, I mean, even how Paul describes sin in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what is sin? To, sh- to, to, to fall short of God's glory, to not give God glory in something. Why? Because that's what he's after, his own glory from you. God? And it seems like that's supposed to be our greatest desire. He wants us to desire his glory Right? When Jesus instructed his followers how to pray, he says, pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be hallowed. May it be seen to be holy. And it ends with, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So right at the beginning and right at the end of the Christian's prayer, it's the desire for God's glory. And in fact, Paul will just... This is the theme over and over again, Ephesians 3.21. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 4.20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen is like when you say something. That didn't always happen at the end of His letter, like the letter's over or the sermon's over. Right? It was a way of saying... I really want this. God, may you have glory forever and ever. Amen. May it be so. That's what amen means. May it be so. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 13.21, God will equip you with everything good for doing His will and may He work in us what is pleasing to Him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Peter 4.11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised. Why? So that in all things God may be praised. Through Christ Jesus, to Him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Jude 1.25, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, before all ages, both now and forevermore. Amen. You kind of see the theme? Over and over again, from beginning to end in the Scriptures, we see that God is interested in His glory above all else. 
Everything he does, he does for the sake of his glory. Now, how do you... And maybe you've picked up on that. You've read the Bible, and if you've kind of picked up on that, and I wonder how that made you feel. Did that unsettle you a little bit? Because did it make you wonder, like, is God selfish? Is God narcissistic? I mean, narcissistic, right, comes from uh, that story, Narcissus. He was one of the Greek gods who fell in love with his own reflection in the pond. He just loved himself, right? So to be narcissistic is to have a preoccupation in yourself, to be interested in yourself above all else. Is God narcissistic? I mean, back in, in biblical times, the gods were, right? Like the Roman gods, the Greek gods, they cared about their own fame, their own glory, their own power above all else. I mean, even those Israelites living in kind of the, uh, that Middle Eastern area, the big power back in the day was Babylon. And the Babylonians, they had their own religion and they had their own creation story. It's called the Enuma Elish. You can still read it. It talks about how their go- go- gods fought Marduk and there was this battle and out of the corpse of the slain dragon, that was, that's the earth. And then Marduk, the god, made human beings out of the earth. And he made them to toil and to be his slaves, to do all his hard work so that the gods could live in luxury and not have to get their hands dirty, right? So the gods are like the 1% elite. We're like the 99% that do all the hard work for them so that they can have glory and take it easy. That's just kind of their conception of gods. They were interested in themselves and their own glory. Is our God like that? Well, a couple questions I want to ask and, uh, and answer here. First of all, what is God's glory? Like, what do we mean when we say that? Because we use that word a lot, don't we? The glory of God. And secondly, why does He want it? Those are both really important questions. What is God's glory? What is God's glory? How would you define glory? Ugh kind of hard to define. It's almost impossible to define in words because glory is more like beauty than basketball. Like it's easy to define basketball, right? It's a spherical object. It's made of rubber. It's hollow. You inflate it with air. It's about 12 inches across. You can bounce it on the ground and you throw it into a basket, hence basketball, right? Fairly easy to define. But beauty, how do you define beauty? It's not so easy to do with words. You can't really say what it is. It's more like you have to see it. Like you have to point to it and go, that's beautiful, that's beautiful, oh, that's not beautiful. And, 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 you kind of, and you kind of see enough that you get a sense of what is beautiful. It's the same with love. Like, how do you define love? You kind of, you, you know it when you see it and when you experience it. But boy, is it hard to define in words. And that's kind of the same with glory. It's not easy to define, but we get some pictures and some associations with other words. And so it seems in the Bible like... Glory, the glory of God is connected with the holiness of God. And so if we go back to Isaiah, where Isaiah the prophet has this vision of God in Isaiah 6, chapter 3, or chapter 6, verse 3, in this vision, he sees these creatures around the throne of God, and they keep continually crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Now the word holy 
means something that is set apart. It's in a class. It's unique. It's in a class of its own. So they're saying God is holy. He is set apart in His worth, superior in His worth, set apart in His qualities, in His character, in His character and His qualities. He is perfect. He is holy in worth, in perfection. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His. What does it say? <clears throat> glory. What it says? The whole earth is full of His glory. God is holy, and the whole earth is full of His glory. And what we'll see is that what glory is, is it seems to be God's expression, God's display of His character. His, it's kind of the outworking manifestation of His qualities, of His holiness. It is God going public so that His holiness, His qualities would be seen. So, Glory, maybe the simplest definition is, it is the beauty of God's holiness. It would be like a painter, a painter who maybe have, have this quality of this excellence in painting. And, 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 and the glory of the painter is the painting, which points to, which is the glory of the painter, which points to his quality or the architect. For the architect, his glory is the buildings he make, which is his expression of his skill, of his worth, of his qualities. Psalm 19.1, David says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Essentially, two statements that are the same using different words. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies that is a heaven, heavens proclaim the works of His hands. So what is God's glory? Creation, it is what He has made. God expresses His glory, the, his, the greatness of who He is through the things that He has made. Have you ever, have you ever just kind of studied what God has made? You ever just looked at it? So I was writing the sermon yesterday. If the sermon sucks, it's because I was writing it yesterday. Okay. I was in the grade three, four classroom because that's where I write my sermons lately. I don't know. I just have to move or I like exhaust the energy of it. I don't know. I sit in the, I sit in the kid's Sunday school room. And I write in the sermon, and there's just a big window there that looks to the woods. And all of a sudden, something caught my eye, just a flash. And I look, there's this huge hawk, huge hawk, beautiful bird sitting up in the branch right, right there in front of me. And I'm just staring at it. I left my sermon. So if there's a place that it feels like something didn't make sense, like there's a gap, it's probably where I stopped to like study this hawk. And, and he's looking around. And then, and then he kind of leaves his perch, and he swoops down and just like navigates through all these trees. It's thick woods back there. And he goes up on another branch, and he does this a few times. And then he goes up, and he catches the current of, of the wind, air current, and he glides, and then he just rises high. He's not even moving. He's just he's sailing on the wind. And I just stood there, and I thought, That's pretty amazing. All of it is amazing. And then I looked at the tree. You ever just looked at a tree and gone, where did that come from? Look at it. It's just weird. 
And out of the ground, out of a seed, this thing grows and it grows and then has branches that create branches. And then this time these little buds come out and then these green leaves unfold. And if you just think of a tree, you're like, wow, that's incredible. And then I thought, God did that. I mean, you can debate about the process God did to make it, but God made it. The hawk, their current, the trees, all of it kind of, it, for me, it, 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 it communicated to me Again, in that moment when I was thinking of it, the power of God. Wow, God is powerful. He just made that. Out of nothing, He spoke and He made. God is powerful. God is creative. How did He think about all of that? The wisdom of God to make all of these things that fit together with seasons and air currents and ecosystems and the wisdom of God, the creativity of God, it's amazing. And this is what David is talking about. What God has made the works of his hands declare, we get to see the greatness of his qualities through what he has made. And so, in fact, one of the other questions that came in, which I won't preach on because some of these questions are are smaller in nature, but it it came to me. Someone asked, um, why is the universe so big? Like, why would create... Why would God create the universe so big? Does that mean like there's maybe Martians out there, like other, because how could it be so big and like we're the only ones? And that's what other people hear, say Elon Musk and say, well, it's too big. There's got to be others. I don't know. Maybe there is. Maybe there isn't. But you know why God made a massive universe where we're still seeing light that's coming from like tens or hundreds of billions of light years away? I can't even fathom that number, right? Why? Well, I think, I think David said it. To declare the glory of God. So God was shouting. He was communicating something about who He is. Through the work of His hands. So, glory is God's expression, His display of His holiness, about His character, his nature. And we're commanded to glorify God, and all we do. So what does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? Is that kind of like purifying something? Like anytime you add if I at the end of something, it's like something you're doing to make something so. So if I purify water, it's not pure. I purify it, and now it's pure. Like is that, is that what it means to glorify God? God is lacking in glory, and we need to make God more glorious? What does it mean to glorify God? Maybe we can understand a little bit when we look at another word it's paired with, okay? Because in the Bible, the two words that often go together are the words glorify and magnify. In fact, sometimes they're used interchangeably. And so in my Bible, uh, NIV version, Psalm 34, verse 3, it says, Come and glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. But your Bible might say, Come, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. Okay, so glorify and magnify seem to be kind of like similar sort of ideas, and maybe that helps us to understand what it means to glorify God when we are to magnify Him. Come, let us magnify the Lord. What does it mean to magnify something? It means to make it bigger, right? Or, or make it, no, not to make it bigger, because magnifying it doesn't actually change the size of the thing, Right? What is it? It, 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 it? it changes my perception of the thing. It looks bigger. But you can magnify something in a couple of different ways, right? You can magnify using a microscope. 
You know that thing you look to in the science lab? You put a Petri dish with some small cells in there, and you look through this microscope, and it takes something that looks really small, and it makes it look bigger. It magnifies it, right? Is that what we're called to do, to magnify the Lord? Make Him look better? Like, hey, cover the blemishes, make Him look great. Kind of like, you know, Kim Jong-un, when he rallies the... You know, North Korea, hey, tell everyone that uh, unless they come and wail and weep and wail and shout as I drive in my caravan down the road, uh, they'll probably go to prison. So you see videos of these people all there, you know, showering praise upon dear leader because they have to, magnifying him, how great he is. Well, that's one way to magnify, and that's never what the Bible means when it talks about glorifying or magnifying God. The other way to magnify is through a telescope, which is very different. Same process, but, but the goal is different because um, a telescope makes something that's far away that looks very small to my naked eye. When I look through a telescope, it makes it look bigger. Not as big as it really is, but closer to its actual size. So I remember summer 2009, we were in the Badlands National Park in South Dakota, you know, when you could still travel outside of Manitoba and see cool stuff. So it'll happen again. We were in, in Badlands and uh, this, this like really powerful telescope we got, because I'd only ever looked at little, like, little ones, like kind of through the neighbor's window just to see what's going on, like those sort of telescopes, but not like kind of like a big one, right? And so it was this big monstrous thing and we, we, we were allowed to go behind it for a minute and there was this little speck, you see that little speck up there? Like, yeah, I think so. It's like, that's Jupiter. Really? Jupiter? Yeah, I want to take a look. So we got behind there, we saw it, I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, it was still small, like smaller than Jupiter is, but I could see it, and, 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 and I saw more of it, and it looked closer to how Jupiter actually is than I could see with the naked eye. And Jupiter's huge. You can't fathom how big Jupiter is, right? But, but through that telescope, I, it, it made it look closer to its actual greatness. And when the Bible says magnify, glorify God in all you do, that's what it's saying. It's saying in the way you live, in all that you do, do it to show, to, to display the greatness of who God is. Not, not greater than He actually is. You're not using a microscope. You're, doing, you're using a telescope so that you can more accurately see God in all of His greatness. magnify, glorify the Lord in all you do. Our lives then are to show more clearly God's superior worth. You know, one of the differences between you or I pursuing our own glory and God doing it is that, I mean, really, he, God is great. That, he deserves that glory. He's not asking for anything that isn't His by right, you know. So it really does belong to God, that glory. So this is what it says in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Those around the throne of God in heaven say, um, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You are worthy to receive glory. Glory, God. In other words, like, this is something that's due you. It belongs to you. Why? For you created all things, 
And, and by you, we were created, and by you, we have our being, which means we live, which means everything that we do, we can only do because God does it. The only reason your heart beats right now is because God keeps your heart beating. God just doesn't, we're not like a, a wind-up toy. He just winds us up like the little duck that walks, winds us up, lets us go, and he walks away, and he's, in, he's doing something else in another planet. No, no, like, he created, and by his power, he holds everything together. In other words, everything we do, everything we accomplish, ultimately is God's work in and through us, because apart from God, we can do nothing, which is why it's not appropriate for us to receive our own glory or seek it, right? When we receive glory for anything we do, like, hey, pastor, that was a good sermon. Like, it could happen, right? Could happen. You know, probably should happen more often than it does, but... Oh, now I'm starting, now I'm doing it again. Right? Anytime, like, you receive glory, I mean, what's the right thing to do? To pass it up the chain, right? Okay, thank you. Thank you, but really. Because what can we do in and of ourselves? Nothing. The only one who really, truly deserves glory is God because everything comes from Him. And so if you were here a few weeks back when Paul Emmer was preaching, he, he introduced us to this little game called Trace It Back to Jesus. And he used the example of a, a, a strawberry, you know, like the vivid color there, which kind of dilates the eyes and the, and, the, and, the, and the flavor which explodes in its mouth. And I think he even talked about like pooping a raspberry seeds to create more raspberry plants, which I thought was really inappropriate. But he's like, he helped us understand, like, when you think of it, everything that's, that's in that strawberry comes from God. That's the work of God. And you get to enjoy it. And in enjoying that, you are experiencing, you can experience in that raspberry the, the glory of God, the greatness of His power, the greatness of His love. Everything that we are and everything that we have, ultimately, we have to trace back to God, which is why God is jealous for His glory, Right? So the words that Sailor read at the beginning, Isaiah 42, verse 8, when God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. I'm not going to allow what rightfully belongs to me to be given to someone else. And I won't read it, but if you go into the next chapter, Isaiah 44, he talks about like how foolish it is to give glory to something that isn't God, to give glory to idols. Like he says, think of it. Craftsmen, they fell a tree, half of the wood they used to burn to make food, and the other half they carve into an idol that they set up in a shrine, and then they worship and serve and glorify the idol. How foolish. They're taking glory that doesn't belong to that thing that belongs to God alone, but they're exchanging that glory that belongs to God and giving it to another. And he says, that's not right because God alone is worthy of glory. God alone is worthy of our ultimate attention and affection. It is, so, so when he asks for it or demands it, he has every right to its right. He's not asking for something that, that isn't his. But that doesn't really answer the question. Okay, but yeah, if I was like super rich and I say, oh, I made all this money, why do I need to give you any? It's mine. I have every right to it. Do whatever I want with it. Doesn't really answer the question, but is God selfish for desiring his own glory? To protect so fiercely what is rightfully his? To be jealous when it isn't given to him? What does it mean to be selfish? 
To be selfish means to put your needs and your wants above another's, right? To pursue your interest to the neglect of another's. There's these competing interests. You're another, then you choose yourself over another. That's what it means to be selfish. You know, I was thinking about this this week. As I read the Gospels, the life and the teaching of Jesus, like sometimes I kind of get confused because I'll hear him say things that are like, he's doing this for us. And then I'll hear him say things like he's doing this for his Father in heaven, and, and I get a little confused. I'm like, well, which is it? Because you'll, you'll, you'll have Jesus say, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. That's us. I have come for you that you might have life. I have come to seek and to save the lost. Okay. But then you'll also hear him say, I have come not to seek my own glory, but I have come to seek the glory of my Father. I only do the will of my Father. And Father, what shall I say? Spare me from this hour? No, it's for this hour that I came. Father, glorify your name. And so it seems like what he's doing is all for his Father's glory, but then at other points it looks like he's doing it for us. And so which is it? Is the gospel about giving God his due, giving God glory? Or is it about pursuing our good? Which is it? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. It is both of those things. The gospel is God's glory on full display. And so, yes, we see Jesus, God's Son, living that perfectly righteous life, vindicating God and meeting God's demands for holiness and righteousness and justice on sin. And but on the cross, dying for us, right? To save us, to win us forgiveness. Not because of who we are, but, but in spite of who we are. He dies for us so that we might be forgiven and be restored to God. And so, in the gospel, He is both pursuing the glory of His Father and pursuing our good. And so, I, I think this is the point. This is what you need to hear and take away. Throw it up on the screen. When God pursues His glory... He pursues your good. Okay? The, we can never separate those two things. Those two things are always the same. When God pursues His glory, when God wants to show and display His greatness and wants us to do that, to display His greatness, His worth in the way that we live and act and do everything we do, when He pursues His glory, He is at the same time pursuing are good because his interest in his glory and his interest in our good are not at odds with one another. In fact, they are the same thing. They are the same thing. Because what you need to know above all else is the glory of God. You need to know the greatness of who God is in his character. That's what you need more than you need anything else to have to experience abundant life, right? To know the greatness of God's power, right? To look out and to see the trees and the hawk and to think, oh my goodness, this ball I stand on, oh my goodness, this universe, how many billions of light years? You mean he just spoke it into existence? And that's the only explanation. I haven't heard a better one from scientists or anyone else. Like, how did it start? Alien seeded life. How did that start? I heard a better explanation. God's, 
When you dwell on that, okay, when you know the greatness of God's power, that frees you from fear and from your, ins- your, your insecurities, right? About the future, we think, man, this God who in the gospel has shown that He is for me, He gave His Son's life for me to bring me into relationship with Him, this one who cares about me, yeah, he's the one who spoke the universe into existence by his word. And like his, I can't fathom how big it is, but he's way over there, hundreds of light, billions of light years away. <clears throat> when, I, when I know the greatness of God's power, I am free from fear about what's going to happen to me. About what, you know, the, the fear that things are out of control because I know they're not out of control. To know the greatness of God's grace is to be free from guilt and shame. The, the grace of God expressed through the cross, through His Son Jesus, who bore our sin. To know God's bottomless grace is to be free from having to carry my guilt and my shame and to feel like my past defines who I am. And that's a burden many people carry. I'm free from that if I know the greatness of God's grace, if I know His glory. If I know the greatness of God's love for me, that He loves me so much to lay down His life for me in spite of who I am, in spite of what I've done, when I know the greatness of God's love for me, as shown in the gospel, it frees me from inadequacy to feel like I have to justify my life. I have to like justify my worth and become lovable and acceptable. I'm free just to be me and to know that God loves me as I am. The only way to live like that is to know the greatness of God's love. To know the greatness of God's wisdom, the way He designed all of this in creation and through human history, that He has this big overarching plan and He's bringing history to His purposed end, is to be free from living a life of meaninglessness and purposelessness. Because I know that whatever's happening, God is in control. God in His wisdom is bringing about a plan and there's purpose and there's meaning even in my suffering. Even if I don't see purpose and meaning, I'm free from the fear that I am living a purposeless and meaningless life because I know the greatness of God's wisdom. And if I know the greatness of God's eternal nature, I'm I'm, 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 I'm freed from living a life of insignificance. You know, the life of, what's it good for anyway? I build my business, I build my family, I build my reputation. It all ends in darkness and death anyway. Like, really, what's the point at the end of the day? You know, death renders everything insignificant. But if I know the greatness of God's eternal nature and that life that we can share through Jesus Christ, with Him... I'm freed from living a life of insignificance. It gives significance to everything I do. When I go to work or to school or wherever tomorrow, I know that my life has eternal significance with what I do, with my life, my time, my resources. In other words, God is the satisfier of all of our deepest longings. So the greatest thing that He can do for you is to give you a greater sense of His greatness. That's a, God is the greatest gift. His glory, to behold His greatness, is the greatest 
gift that we can have because it's that that leads us into this experience of abundant life that Jesus came to, to, to win for us. So to know God's glory is to know that sort of life. Okay? When God pursues his glory, he's, he's pursuing your good. Those two things are not at odds with one another. They are one and the same. When God makes much of himself, he is making much for us. And when we make much of him, in the way we live our lives, when we live for his glory, that's what we are doing. We are coming to him as, 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 as the satisfier of all of those deepest longings. And that's why he's jealous for his glory. It's not just because it's his and he wants it and you better not give it to anyone else. It's because he wants something for us. He doesn't want us to have something lesser than the best, something that doesn't ultimately satisfy all of our deepest needs and longings. It's because he loves us dearly that he is so jealous for his glory. He doesn't want us to settle for lesser than, which is why in Jeremiah 2, he just kind of laments that his people had turned away from him the spring of living water and have dug broken cisterns that leak. They will not hold water. They keep adding water, but it will not hold water, right? And what are those broken cisterns? Well, in those days, it was like maybe other idols, false gods that couldn't do anything. Now, we, we don't, we don't we're, we're too smart to have idols, right? Like, you probably don't have an idol, but if you do, it's all right. I mean, do anyone have an idol at home? You know, wood, metal, stone that you kind of, that you glorify or serve? If you do, you should probably get rid of it, but you probably don't, right? But, but we have a habit, our hearts of making other idols, other things, relationships, whatever, that we, in, w- in which we try to find our meaning, try to, try to find our satisfaction, right? Whether it's, you know, relationships, sex, ambition, you know, reputation, family, wealth, financial security, all sorts of things in which we can place our hopes and try to find our satisfaction. In Paul, in Romans chapter 1, Paul Paul called people like that fools. He says, they are fools for they have exchanged the glory of God for the glory and given that glory to created things. They are fools. They're being stupid because they're trying to like find in something, something, some satisfaction it cannot ultimately give them that only God can give to them. So C.S. Lewis, bringing this to a close here, great writer, he talked about this. He talked about how the problem in our world is not that we have people with too great of passions. He says the, the problem is actually that people, people's passions are too weak. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak, for we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Trying to find satisfaction in things that cannot satisfy, things that only God can give, I haven't seen the sea in 16 years. It's been 16 years since I've seen the ocean. But, but maybe kind of bringing this into my life, what he said here, um, 
I have seen Grasmere Ditch. I've seen Grasmere Ditch on the road there. What he's saying is, imagine you go and you, you bring the family, you enjoy the sights of Grasmere Ditch, you camp on the side, you picnic, right? Living at Grasmere Ditch. When you could, just over the hill, just over the hill is the Grand Canyon. Now, I was at the Grand Canyon a few years ago. You been to the Grand Canyon? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. You cannot fathom. Like, it's just, you get a sense of the glory of God there. It's just like, it's just kind of like, you feel so small and yet so amazing at the same time. I think that's what it's like to know the glory of God. Just, you just hours, look out to look out, just studying this incredible place, just being amazed. Everywhere I looked, it was incredible. And he says, too many people, they're mucking about at Grasmere Ditch, trying to find happiness, fulfillment, meaning, right? When the Grand Canyon is just around the corner, the place that truly, that truly provides John Piper, pastor, he said this, God's glory is the source and the sum of all full and lasting joy. Why pursue God's glory in all things? Because that's the path to true and lasting joy. To live in the knowledge of God's greatness in all of his character and perfections is to live in the most abundant life. And God doesn't want anything lesser for us. So he pursues his glory. Because he wants our good. So let me just ask you a question before we pray. Are you, if you're being honest, and you, know, you, you might need to take this question home with you to ponder and pray over it, are you seeking satisfaction for any of your kind of needs or longings um, in lesser things than in God? Freedom from fear, meaning in life, purpose, love. Are you seeking your satisfaction in lesser things than in God? And the second question is kind of connected to it. Is your life a telescope through which others can see the glory of God? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before men. Okay? So, others that may see your, so others may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay? Our life as Christians is to be a telescope with, with people to look through our lives and to see God closer to who he is in his greatness. And how will they do that? It's, it's when they see us satisfied in God. It's not about having the finely crafted words. I don't, know how, I, I don't know how to be a witness for Jesus. I don't know that I've got the words or, you know, the sophistication or whatever. It's not ultimately about that. It's about living a life that shows that you find your satisfaction in God. That's what makes much of God. That's to bring God glory. We can all do that. Is your life a telescope through which others might see the greatness of God in how you are satisfied in Him, you find your contentment in Him, your joy in Him, your meaning in Him, your security in Him?
For God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. I heard that once and it always stuck with me. Maybe you've heard it, but it's a good quote. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Because when God pursues his glory, he pursues our good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not a God like the gods that were chiseled in marble and stone and cast in metal, who were no gods at all, gods that were kind of like just projections of us, people who are prone to be selfish and to pursue our own glory, be interested in ourselves above others. Uh, thank you, God, that you're not like that, that you are a God who... Um, Has revealed yourself in many different ways. You've revealed yourself in this created world we get to live in and enjoy. You've revealed yourself in strawberries and in hawks and in oceans and in Grand Canyons. And you've revealed yourself in the gospel of Jesus. You, you've shown us who you are, your great, the greatness of your power, the greatness of your wisdom, and the greatness of your love and the greatness of your grace. So thank you, God, that you are interested in your glory because we need to see, we need to see how great you are so that you know, our heart is weaned off of trying to find meaning and satisfaction in other things and, and put it on you where, only, uh, you know, where, where, where those needs can only be met. Lord, you are the satisfier of all our deepest longings. And so, God, just in our own lives, as we just honestly reflect on why we're living, you know, our, our goal in doing what we do, what we're pursuing, God, would you just show us um, how we can more and more pursue your glory, not just because you deserve it and it's rightfully yours and we ought to give it to you, but because that's also the path to, to the fullest life. God, would you, just, um, would you just help us, Lord, find all of that in you to really behold your glory and help others see the same. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.